The following is brought to you with no commercial interruptions. Listen up. Hey, it's Brandon. So this is a special episode. It's an interview with author Ronan Giveney, author of the book Not For You, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense, as I will mention several times over the course of this podcast. Since this is a track-by-track podcast, I thought, hey, Let's talk about the song, Not For You, since that just happens to be the title of the book you wrote. But I've already talked about it, so I was like, oh, hey, let's do a redux. We can have a redux season for whenever I want to go back and cover a song that I've already talked about. If there happens to be somebody that I want to get on that wants to talk about something else that I already talked about, and we'll just talk about it again. But... I really didn't feel like going into it again. I got all my old research out and I was like, ah, I already talked about this. So I kind of lost interest real quick there and abandoned that, as you'll hear in, uh, in this episode. So we talk about just a bunch of random stuff. Hopefully you'll like it and uh, this might convince you to pick up the book. So let's get into it and uh, theme music. Welcome to the Better Band Podcast, an all-encompassing trip through the Pearl Jam catalog. I am your host, Brandon Palomo. Each episode, my guest and I go track by track through every album, soundtrack, and single to discover why you simply can't find a better band. Welcome to the Better Band Podcast. This is Brandon. Uh, today I have author Ronan Giveney with me. Uh, he is the author of 24-Hour Revenge Therapy or The Strange Death of Selling Out, part of Bloomsbury's 33 and the Third series. He's also the founder of New York's Wordless Music Series and Orchestra, which was named by the Village Voice as the city's best moderately snooty concert series and a contributor to the liner notes for Nonsuch, Constellation, Thrill Jockey, and Temporary Residence. He is also the author of the book, Not For You, Pearl Jam, and the Present Tense, available on Bloomsbury, and uh, he is here today to talk with us uh, about the book and the song from which he pulled the title, Not For You. Ronan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Oh, it's good to have you and to talk to... uh, to somebody out there that hopefully people can get some uh, some good knowledge from and will listen to this and say, hell yeah, I want to read that book, right? Definitely. Um, but since it's the first time I've had you on, uh, just like all my other guests, I have to ask you, uh, Ronan, when did you first hear of Pearl Jam? Uh, I guess it would have to be uh, sometime in you know, the late summer, early fall of 91, uh, you know, not long after 10 came out. And I, I remember, you know, almost the day uh, and just the setting of like being in my house with my little brother and you know, the, the black and white video for a live being on screen and, you know, kind of watching it with him. And, uh, you know, we always joke about it to this day. He was like, you know, he was like, this is a new band, Pearl Jam, and I was like, you know, whatever. They're not as good as Nirvana. Like, uh, like that was, you know, that that was, you know, he's the quote that he still haunts me with sometimes. So, 
Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was just at a perfect age to, um, you know, it was 12, 13 years old. And, and, and uh, for the next couple of years, you know, with my friends in high school, I went to a suburban high school in South Florida. And, you know, we came home from school every day and watched MTV and then called each other and talked about it. And that was, you know, that moment of just <clears throat> saturation, you know, the, the kind of resurgence in rock in, in late 91. Um, uh, so, yeah, uh, definitely 10 versus Vitology era. Um, you know, as I mentioned in the book, kind of, you know, sort of a slightly different music around the time of No Code and Yield. And then, you know, when I was in college and then out, uh, you know, got very strongly back into them. Um, what was it uh, that Pearl Jam gave to you that you didn't uh, necessarily get from Nirvana at the time? Um, you know, I, I mean, I think that, uh, like, you know, as I try to write about in the book, um, you know, I was one of those people for whom the performance of MTV Unplugged was you know, really important, just almost embarrassingly so. Um, you know, I, I had recorded it on VHS and, and on cassette and um, I, and even like working on this book, you know, I found myself texting and calling up friends of mine from high school and college and just saying to them like, you know, do you remember seeing this on TV? Is this something that, um, you know, sticks out to your memory? And, and, you know, almost uniformly people were like, oh yeah, you know, that was just like, that was just like not even a musical moment. That was just like a TV, like pop culture thing that like, you know, was uh, inescapable. You know, like if you were whatever, a suburban kid, like in uh, 1992. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know, like I, um, I, I think that like all of that music, um, Nirvana and Nine Inch Nails and, smashing pumpkins like uh you know i don't i don't know how much of it was conscious or just like kind of an accident but it, you know it seemed very emotionally honest it seemed like you know it was like uh music you could rock out to and kind of have fun with and music that also comforted you like when you were not feeling great and you know very early on you know i mean i listened to the 10 and verses all the time but like it was it was a lot of songs like uh you know footsteps and no lit better uh that i really listened to and and it you know I, that that real um ex, you know just exposed uh really uh raw you know thing it it uh you know we were just very fortunate that that was um it seemed normal, you know, it seemed like that was just the way that things were done. And uh, that cluster of years, it was just a very nice, cool time to be like a young person. And, you know, it, they were a band that it was very easy to feel like, you know, they belonged to everyone, but they were also yours in, in, a, in a small way. Yeah, a little bit of uh, being able to be, uh, I don't know, like uh, something to everyone as opposed to just uh, one thing to to one group of people they got the uh the fast hard songs they got the slow songs but it's pretty much all something that somebody that 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 can touch everybody as opposed to just the one thing that uh maybe that just nirvana was doing with uh their kind of stuff but 
also probably speaks to the uh, the type of fan base that uh, that Pearl Jam has garnered over their their thirty years. Yeah, I think that sounds right. So uh, let's see. We got the book called "Not for You," and they, uh, of course, also have a song of uh, that title. Um, was there something specific about the song that you felt connected with why you wanted to uh, uh, title this book of yours about it? Yeah. Um, you know, I would say two things. One, um, you know, you can probably tell from the table of contents. Um, you know, I, I try to, you know, really do justice to the band across the you know, full breadth of their career, both in their origins and their you know influences and and then you know more recently but you know for me personally i i think that there was you know there was this moment of you know call it i don't know three to five years where it was you know really just kind of beatlemania i think for them and and, and i think that there's no other comparison it, it was just this thing where like you know the biggest records in the world and, and like everything they did was on the front page and, and their, you know, their picture was everywhere. It's not that I, I just think that that moment was really interesting, like both for them and um, culturally and politically. And, and there was just a, a lot of interesting things happening I think, in the country and the world. And, and um, so, yeah, so a lot of the book kind of, you know, kind of, concentrates on this moment of like early 1994 you know uh, where um you know they had just put out verses they're working on cytology Kurt Cobain you know that happened and then Ticketmaster was happening and then Dave Abrazis left the band there you know that could be a book in itself you know I think just that year or two um and I you know tried to tried to you know not overdo it but to just kind of uh zoom in a little bit and talk about it and so yeah not for you um it was it would it, it it was one of the very first things that came to mind with this you know I, I knew that um i wanted to talk about the early years i knew that i wanted to talk about you know certain records but i knew that like this song um to me like captured some very particular quality about them and i didn't know at first what it was i you know i still think it's a bit ambiguous but um you know and and so i try in the book to talk about you know just when they played it live on saturday night live it was you know the week after Kurt Cobain had been found dead and you know on the one hand it is you know they're playing you know this heroically misanthropic song that is basically telling large parts of their audience just to fuck off. Um, and yet they're playing it, you know, on the widest possible platform on, you know, network TV, like certainly when many eyes would be on them, you know, after Kurt. So, you know, I, I, I found this just to be a very rich, you know, subject. And, and I think that, you know, this is the sort of thing that, to a certain extent, um, really infuriated people about Pearl Jam. You know, like they, they would say, like, you know, how can you go, you know, like, how can you play a song called Not For You on like the most, you know, coveted pop cultural spotlight and just thumb your nose at it, like, you know, which you could say they did a couple of times. I, I, I 
you know, I try to talk about in the book how, like, I think both, you know, with the song and just with other things that were going on with them, in a way that only a few people, I think, have done, you know, like the Beatles, certainly, and then even people like, you know, Greta Garbo and, and Dave Chappelle, like, who just kind of walked away from stardom, they, they really, you know, complicated their own existence enormously, and, and they, they, they kind of existed for a long time by the strategy of really deliberate refusal. Um, and, you know, I think that's what people kind of loved about them is that, you know, everyone wanted a piece of them. And for a while, they were just weirdly, you know, out of everyone's grip. And um, yeah, and it's just a, you know, I, I like, I, you know, just as a song, like, I think just structurally, mechanically, instrumentally, like, you know, it, it just shows them at their best, like, you know, very simple lyric, you know, like very kind of masterly guitar part, bridge from Stone, very easily adapted to, you know, songs on either end, live and tags and lead-ins. And um, so, you know, it's it's just one of, the, there's a handful of songs that's like, what makes Pearl Jam great live and on record and just socially. And, uh, you know, you know, as I mentioned briefly, like, there was a second where, like, I had a couple of people ask me, like, are you sure this is the most inviting title, like, for a book? And I, you know, I, I agree with them. And yet, like, at the end of the day, I was like, I, I don't really know what else it could be called. Because if you ask me, like, why I'm still going back to see them, it is this weird, like, contrary, paradoxical thing that, like, is really exemplified by the song, I think. Yeah, that period of time, I think, with their sort of um, with their sort of disappearance from the public eye, do you think that that sort of fed in to the sort of perception that they had of you know not being the cool band that they had back then? Because you know you have all, or, or possibly you know because they were appealing to more than just a sort of base of fans because they had sort of different styles of songs. And then you have people who still listen to them now. And, and then uh, you kind of hide and kind of uh, retreat a little bit when, you know, you're wearing a Pearl Jam shirt and people will ask, Oh, they're still a band. They're still around. They're still putting out records. What? Yeah. You know, I think that, I mean, for me, I think that all of this sort of, secondary information you know about the band and their videos and their interviews and whatever like is interesting but i don't think anybody would care if the songs weren't there you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. and i think that that's just what the difference is with pearl jam and a lot of these groups who you know there's many groups who like talked a great game and were like you know we're not going to sell out we're not going to go on mtv whatever and nobody remembers any of them because you know frankly the music was just rough for a while, you know, they could just could do no wrong. And, and, you know, like, you know, (laughs) it happened to coincide when they were the biggest band in the world and everyone wanted them, you know, everyone wanted to see them. Everyone wanted just to know about them. So, yeah, I mean, it, uh, for me, it all goes back to the music. And even if there were a totally different set of words, like even if the chorus were not, you know, not for you, like there's just something about that really simple, seductive kind of Neil Young type riff that, um, you know, I mean, there's many bootlegs where I think it says like, you know, this is not a complicated song. You know, this, this song is proof that like you guys could be on stage doing this. 
uh, we're not doing anything, you know, mystical or pure. I think that um, that like it, it, you know, we can talk all day about whatever help persona, but if the if the song is not there, I don't think anybody cares. And you have a um, a background in classical music. Yes. <laughs> is that um, playing or um, composing analysis? Um, sort of neither. It's uh, it's I. It's a bit weird and random. I mean, I, I like I'm not really a classical music person by background. I like I I listen to rock music growing up, and I did not really. I got a job working at an orchestra like a little while after I graduated from college, and. You know, I was going out with a girl who played violin and she would say, like, you know, you you have to come to my concert. Like, and I would say, like, do I have, you know, I, I don't want to. <laughs> and she would say, like, if you want to hang out with me, you know, you're going to come see my show. So I would go and, and I would say, like, oh, you know, I'm an idiot. Like, this is, this is, you know. And then this eventually developed and I worked at Lincoln Center for a while and I started, you know, I mean, this is neither here nor there, but I was presenting concerts and, you know, doing some shows with it ensemble so okay you know I, i'm definitely a rock person by background and you know i think you'll see in the book like um you know i love their kind of straight ahead rock song but i you know when there is a mode i think of pearl jam they kind of art rock mo- mode that I, I especially like yeah it's just um you know it's just a funny kind of thing i thought to mention <laughs> No, that's okay. That that brings up like you know the the that sort of brings up the the dichotomy of um, new music, I guess, and the old music. But then you know now Pearl Jam is the old music still again because you know you have all this uh, newer stuff that people are listening to now. I was I was I just asked if if uh, what your background in that was because um, I do have a a, a friend who's in the uh, in the classical world. He's a composer, uh, Sean Shepard. Oh. He's, our age very cool i guess and gonna shout him out my only connection to the classical world but um um yeah because not for you is a very it's got like one motif in it that's repeated you know pretty much over and over again yes. and i didn't know if if he thought that there was some sort of um i didn't even know if there was a connection there between classical which you always think of as so you know huge and flowery and there's all this stuff going on there's counterpoint there's you know, all these different instruments and not for you is like the same thing over and over again. Yeah. But it sort of hammers on an emotion, I guess, that you can get from that. And, and the lyrics right. definitely augment that as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, Pearl Jam, like they, they have like some connections to classical music. Like, you know, there was a while where their lead in was Philip Glass, uh, solo piano piece. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's actually a funny like video clip where I think it's like, you know, Mike and Mad Season did this, they, they did this thing with, I think the Seattle symphony yeah. and there's like an interview with Mike and um, I, I, I'm remembering correctly, the, you know, the chief conductor of the symphony is this French guy, Ludovico Morlot. You know, he, he does like, you know, he's pretty well known for recordings of modern music, like, you know, Stravinsky and Debussy and stuff. Anyway, so he and Mike are, like, kind of walking through Benner Royal Hall, I think, and just, you know, shooting shit. And uh, I'm pretty sure, like, the conductor, Morlo Ludo, says something like, he's talking about Wagner, and he says something like, you know, Wagner uses, you know, themes and motives, you know, motifs in the ring cycle. 
and you know just really like basic information and mike you know this kind of like wonderful look of confusion comes across his face and uh <laughs> and the conductor is like you know wagner like you know richard wagner the ring cycle you know like siegfried and mike's just like uh and like and you know i love that moment because i was like mike has probably done 10 film scores you know like he probably knows like i don't know every like progressive rock you know solo whatever from the 70s but like wagner and the ring cycle he's like you know i'm drawing a blank here so i don't know that's kind of what i love about pearl jim is like the you know the sort of defiantly middle brow low brow thing with like the high concept is uh you know is, is very them you gotta bring it back to looney tunes to get people to uh it's like oh yeah that one that episode that uh okay yeah exactly <laughs> That early period in Pearl Jam, there's a lot of sort of mythology built up about it. There's, you know, there's multiple books and stuff that have been written on it, stuff that focuses on that era. What do you think there is about Pearl Jam that lends to such uh, prolific analysis of the sort of, of, of beginning period? Well, I just think they were on a roll for a while. You know, I think that like for, you know, depending on, how many years you want to give them like four, six, eight years. Like they were just really, you know, they had the hot hand and, 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 uh, you know, and it, and it was, you know, it was just a really exciting moment. You know, I think that, um, you know, again, I try to talk about this a little bit, like that group of bands, you know, which I, I would, inc- you know, include like screaming trees and, Allison Chains and Soundgarden, you know, they were really good on their own. They were even better, like kind of taken together. You know, they were kind of bigger than some of their parts. But like, there, it was also just this moment of like, you know, a new president who was, you know, youthful and like, you know, played saxophone on Arsenio Hall, and and there was, you know, Rock the Vote, and 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 it was like, for better or worse, you know, I think that MTV, like, you know, I I think it's important not to overstate these sorts of things but i think it, it was it was kind of a a common lot where everyone would just kind of check in and you know i i think that like again it's easy to overstate but like you know you just had like Doc, dr dre you know next to metallica next to nirvana uh and and like you know everyone everyone loves the music that you discover when you're 13 like that's 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 timeless and that's always going to be like part of what's great about being a teenager but you know those bands i think like i think that there was just something special about them you know like like i I think that like you can make the case that like every three-year period Mm -hmm. you know there are special artists and special bands that come out i don't necessarily like i don't know that i agree with that i think that like if you just look at like you know, 1967, like that was like a different year than like 1987, you know, like, like, I, I think like if you're determined to find something great, you can, but I think that there's, you know, waves and there's, you know, canyons and, and, and uh, like, it was just one thing after another, you know, like, and it was just, you know, it was like, if you were into, you know, Nine Inch Nails, if you're into Raging Against the Machine, if you were into Snoop Dogg, if you're into, Mary J. Blige, Wu-Tang Clan, Trap Call Quest, you know, like, these were all just fucking amazing artists and, like, would have stood out in any time, I think, and these guys were just all, like, 
on top of each other. You know, like I think that the day that Nevermind came out, which was late September 91, it was something like, you know, I'm, I'm probably going to forget a couple of these records, but it was like Nevermind and um, Bad Motor Finger and the Low End Theory. And I think like a Pixies album came out. You know, again, this is something I try to talk about in the book. Like, was there so much great music because people were buying it? Or were people buying music because there was so much great music? Like, which way does the arrow go? And, you know, it, it was just like structurally, technologically, it was just a different moment where the power resided with record labels and with stores and like, you know, CDs were not cheap, but a band could support themselves. Musicians could support themselves. And, and there was a whole like whatever scaffold underneath them of like venues and writers and journalists and designers and photographers and, you know, and uh, you know, and so I think like it, I don't want to say it was like the last gasp of that moment, but that, that, it's not surprising that those couple of years have resulted in so many books and so many movies is because like, I personally feel like it was the last time that there was a moment that approached the, the late sixties. And I don't really know that it's been talked about in that way, but yeah, it was like, and they were just right there, you know, and really, I think in the center of it. It doesn't hurt that there's, you know, yeah, CDs are a pretty new technology and, the record companies can make a whole lot more money on it. So they get this uh, this group of artists that they can kind of push and try to, you know, get these CDs out and everything. Yeah, exactly. Record co- record stores making money, all these people making money. Eh, if there's any leftover, give it to the bands. So yeah, there's this, this huge time for this huge band. Um, like I said, there's a lot of a lot of people who focused on that time. You know, there are the the books written about it. Uh, Five against one, you know, you have Pearl Jam 20. There's a, a 33 and a third about uh, versus, I believe that's going to come out next year or something like that. Your book, though, does it go beyond that? Is there something in here that's going to give people that need more Pearl Jam in their life? Is is What's it going to give them that, uh, that people aren't going to get from all those other books that everybody already has? Yeah, good question. I mean, you know, I... I mean, I personally wanted, I felt like your own point of view, which, you know, those books don't have, and you gotta, (laughs) everybody wants to hear themselves talk, right? I mean, I think for me, like, you know, one thing that I wanted to talk about was, you know, not just the band, but really what was going on around them. Mm -hmm. You'll see, you know, I think, or I hope in the book that um, I, I, I try to counterpoint, you know, kind of throughout, you know, just what was happening, like, both in Washington and, you know, overseas and how there were times when I think they almost unconsciously were, you know, a part of things in the zeitgeist that, you know, like at every, at every point, you know, like whether it's having a record leak early or, um, you know, going head to head with Ticketmaster or AT&T, like they've just been consistently ahead of the mark and prescient. And I wanted a book that just did them justice. You know, I, I, I felt like, you know, Five Against One, I, there's parts of that book I like a lot. The one that John Cohen did, um, you know, Pearl Jam 20 is, you know, a book I used quite a bit um, writing this and, and certainly fact checking and, and, you know, 
just a lot of the, you know, shows that they singled out were, you know, really invaluable in my own writing and my own thinking. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't have done it if I felt like the story had been told. And yeah, like I, I try just kind of the way my, I'm oriented. I, I, I ended up writing a lot about like their involvement with feminism and with abortion rights, police brutality, foreign affairs and, and the war in Iraq in the nineties and, and again in 2003. Um, I wrote a chapter about Thomas Young um, and the movie Body of War. And, you know, that's the nice thing is like, it's not really a book that concludes because like their stories is still very wide open. So I think just that kind of lens and, and that that um, that look at, at like both the band and what was going on around them was just how I tried to approach this. Sort of like uh, placing them into history. Exactly. Okay. Has writing always been something that you that you felt like you needed to do in your life or that you wanted to, or did it seem like just a, a way to make money for you? Uh, there's definitely better ways to earn money that I can confirm, uh, <laughs> you know, faster ways. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not like a music critic or anything. And, and so um, I, you know, I tried, I think to balance, you know, both, telling the band story, you know, just talking a little, little bit about myself and, and, you know, and I found, I found that like in my experience, Pearl Jam is a band that like, you know, everyone loves kind of different songs and everyone has very strong opinions about them. And yet like in the aggregate, like if you're at a Pearl Jam show today, you probably bought versus, you know, the week it came out, you probably had it unplugged like as a bootleg, you probably watched SNL. So, you know, I, I found that like in writing about these things, you know, just the very small feedback I've had from people that that was something other people did too. And I like that about this band. You know, I, I think that like so much in our culture is, you know, intentionally or not like divides us and, and it's, and there's not many, whatever cultural touchstones that you know everybody like can just remember like at least in my experience so um yeah it, it was just a matter of like i you know i felt like more than once i had like many people reading over my shoulder like and it it was sort of made it easier and harder you know at the same time i'm trying to make sure you don't upset the people that are gonna push their glasses up and say well actually well it's a tough it's a tough audience you know i think mm -hmm. that like it's and i and i you know a couple of times i i said to myself like am i writing this just for the hardcore people am i writing this for you know people who don't really care about the band like and and there's not many bands you can do that for you know like uh like i, I think that they're a band that a lot of people just remember and you can you know you can sort of talk about them in the way you can talk about whatever the stones or the grateful dead that like you don't have to be a deadhead to know that like from the Fillmore West in 1966 to, you know, Soldier Field in 1995, that band like traveled a very interesting road and you can tell like a lot of stories from it. Yeah. Everybody's probably got one of the first three albums from uh, BMG or Columbia house. That they just paid a penny for or whatever <laughs> sitting in their CD cases or whatever, or have since sold to a, pawn shop or something maybe 
Yeah, you're talking about there's different kinds of fans and everything like that. Do you think that there's something that unites everyone besides Pearl Jam, or you think there's there's something that that people from across the uh, the political spectrum or the um, geographic spectrum that keys into something about this band that isn't necessarily their music, or that it's only the music that sort of brings us out of of, of people. The only reason that we uh, that we're together. I think a lot of people, you know, obviously have made friends, um, you know, have found partners and spouses and all that. And, and, and I think that that's part of the cool thing about the band, you know, there's like, there's almost like a Pearl Jam mode that you go into and like, a you know, it's like, it's, it's like a baseball season versus off season or whatever. I don't know. You know, I think that it's been, I keep thinking about how like I was going to be in, Toronto or whatever, like in March and how like I would have just sent the book off then. And, you know, at the time it would have just been like, okay, like, you know, psych to hear them play the new songs, Mm -hmm. you know, but now like, I think like in New York, like there's some very small music events going on, like outdoors, like some very, very early tentative steps. But, you know, I just think that like even more so, you know, just the act of, I mean, as someone who earns his living in live music, you know, this is something I think about a lot, you know, is like so many things in our world today, you know, whether it's Netflix or Hulu or whatever, like they're designed to like make you sit on your couch or like sit in your, you know, watch, looking at something on your phone with your head phones plugged in and just totally disconnected from the world and that's fine i do that like i'm not you know i'm not like virtuous but uh like there's something contrarily about like seeing a movie in a room of strangers or like or like or like hearing a song or like just congregating with people who of like similar temperament but just like strangers you know like people you have to get along with Mm -hmm. um that like you know it's especially now it's so like uh almost laughably obsolete and out of date you know it's like this 19th century practice of like of like hearing you know like super labor labor intensive like setting up speakers you know like uh when things can just be beamed out instantly all over the world like but you know there's something about just like the you know the heat of like uh fellow humans and like anticipation and even like disappointment you know like when when whatever the band is not you know feeling it that is really going to be you know so much more charged whenever they you know whenever we're able to get all back together again um and i had a chance you know to kind of rewrite the the last chapter a few times like while covid was going on and it was not lost on me that um, this thing has reminded me why we we all do this. Like, uh, it's because we're chasing like this, you know, this moment that is not everyday life. That is not like you know, nine o'clock meeting and five o'clock check out. Like, uh, it's random and it's like, so, yeah, you know, I mean, the music is obviously a lot, is most of it. And, you know, hanging out and having a good time doesn't hurt, but it's... um you know, I, I just think that for their audience, especially like there's not that many bands left like that, like all of us can get together for, you know, like I was, I, I you know, 
like I like Radiohead a lot. I've seen them a bunch. And like, I always like, whenever I go see Pearl Jam, I ask people like, are you going to go see Radiohead when they come to town? And they're like, I don't like that band. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's so many instances where entertainment and I don't know, things to distract us or whatever, or just isolate us. Right. Then it's like, you know, you listen to music, you know, you have your headphones on, you're doing that alone. Uh, you're watching Netflix, whatever you're on your, your TV and stuff or you're on your phone, whatever. So do you think then that the that the live experience for Pearl Jam are like these liminal events that we need to break through in order to sort of commune with people and have an experience outside the inside world of our own heads? Or, or do you think that there's an appreciation that can also be found just in the, uh, the music itself? I think a big part of it is just like the, you know, is the labor intensiveness of it. You know what I mean? Like, uh, like it's, I don't know. It's like, you know, it's not that, I mean, let's be honest. Like it, it's not always that like, uh, convenient, like to go, like, like fight a hundred people in line. And then like, you know, a lot of people, like, I, I, I mean, I think this will change like after COVID, but like, you know, a lot of people like you can't bribe to go to a concert like and it's not a matter of education. It's not about like if you went to, you know, wherever, like if you some people like they just nothing is going to is going to get them out. And I don't know, like I as as someone who works in music and as someone who just knows like a little bit about what it takes just to put a band on stage, like even in the best of circumstances, I mean, you know, they do things different in Europe, like they're already doing, you know, things over there. So who who's who knows like what what next summer will be like. But yeah, like if there's just a really roundabout way of saying, like, if none of this were going on, I think the book would have turned out quite differently. Do you think that Pearl Jam can pull off a uh, like a socially distant concert or do you think their fans? No, I don't can... think I don't think rock and roll works socially distanced. I mean, not that I'm aware of. And that's not to say that like these drive-in concerts like can't happen and they look fun. I mean, whatever, like I'm sure just to go anywhere these days and, you know, hear some music and hang out with people publicly, you know, is, uh, is rewarding. You know, even what I do, like, I mean, like I, you know, we rarely get to play to more than like two or 3000 people, but like, even if you just think about an orchestra, you know, like, like, you can't have a hundred people on stage, like six feet apart. Like uh, it just doesn't work. And those merch lines. Oh man, that'd be way too long. Everybody's <laughs> six feet apart. Oh geez. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's like in a way, I don't know, like those guys are heroes, you know, like, and they know that like so many people count on them, like even just on a regular, whatever day now, you know, like they're, it's on their mind. Like, how are we going to really like rise to this occasion? But then at the same time, I wonder like, you know, why haven't they done a self pollution radio thing? Why haven't they done like, uh, I mean, they've done a few things like that, but we'll see. Yes. Did you have something? Did you want to say something? No, I just didn't know. Uh, did you have any other questions to get to? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, I'm definitely going to read the book and it does sound like something that is, you know, right up my alley. I'm not real into sort of gossip and stuff like that. Like what the band, oh, you know, this guy was thinking this while this was going on. It does sound like a real sort of, of just like a placing Pearl Jam in the context of history 
sort of a meta-analysis, I guess, of their music and the times that we've been living in. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, and I think uh, I think everybody else will, will appreciate it, too. The book comes out on uh, October 15th, and uh, people can go to bookstores if their bookstores are being responsible and everything, or buy stuff online, right? Do you have your own little... Uh, website that you you want people to uh to try to use or that you have uh people that can uh learn more about it uh yeah you know it's if you can you know support nice indie bum pop store if there's one in your hometown those are always good to go to otherwise it's you know available online and uh um yeah just wanted to say thank you brandon for hosting me and uh and really enjoyed talking to you about everything yeah no problem it's always it's always nice to to talk Pearl Jam when you probably don't have that many people that you know personally in your everyday lives that you get to talk about uh, Pearl Jam with, right? So thanks a lot. Uh, Ronan, again, the book is called Not For You, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense. Um, it is a, a book about Pearl Jam that uh, you're you're going to like. Or, hey, you know what? Support your libraries. Tell your library you'd like them to order it and have it in and... Uh, libraries need some love during this uh, time as well yeah for sure thanks brandon talk to you guys soon the better band podcast is produced by listenupreno.com and brandon palomo and published using a creative commons attribution share alike 4.0 license please visit creativecommons.org or email listenupreno at gmail.com for more details all music played is owned by the respective publishers and copyright holders and is reproduced for review purposes only under fair use You can subscribe to the Better Band Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or from betterbandpod.com using your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at betterbandpod. I am on Twitter at Brandon P, B-R-A-N-D-E-N-P. If you'd like the job I'm doing here, you can go to ko-fi.com slash Brandon P and leave me a $3 tip. Or go to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star review and don't forget to tell your friends. If you'd like to be a guest on a future episode, send an email to betterbandpod at gmail.com or send any insights and stories you'd like to share, and I'll read them on the season finale episode. Again, I'd like to thank my guest Ronan Giveny, and as always, this is Brandon saying... I can't say tip mouse without giggling like a schoolgirl. <laughs>